A special uh, thank you to Carol and Neil, 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 Neil for those Bible readings. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name is Tim. I'm here on staff as a student minister. Uh, I spent most of my week out at Newtown studying, but I, I get the opportunity and the blessing to be here on Fridays with youth and you guys here in the mornings and evenings. Uh, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, so it'd be great if you keep it open. Uh, as a brief sort of idea of where we're heading, last week, I think, I didn't get a chance to hear what Jeff said, but Titus chapter 1 is really about the, the dangers of teaching the wrong, wrong thing and living out the wrong, wrong kind of life. And today we're looking at the idea of what, what does real doctrine look like when it's lived out in the church and what does that mean? Uh, so let me just pray for us as we start and we'll go from there. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is all-loving, a God who has uh, given his life for us so that we can, given his son's life for us so that we can stand forgiven as your children. We thank you that Christ has risen from the grave and that we stand uh, forgiven in, him, in you, him, through him, in your eyes. Lord, we just pray now that you'll help us to listen and learn, that you'll guide our hearts and our minds to understand your will more clearly, that you'll guide the words that are spoken, that all that is said and done here is done for your glory for your kingdom, and in Jesus' name. In him we pray. Amen. Uh, I thought I would start us off with a joke. It's not a very good joke, uh, but it's a joke that makes a point. So my joke is, how do you know that someone is a vegan? Thank you. The, the answer is, don't worry, they'll tell you. Now, I want to say I don't actually necessarily approve of this joke, but the point of the joke is to say that someone will speak up uh, if they're a vegan. It's a great way of sort of avoiding a difficult conversation about the morality of eating meat by just sort of elevating one person above the other and, and making them look... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, but the point... <laughs> the reason I'm using this joke is that I actually don't think this joke is true. I think you can tell someone's a vegan uh, much quicker simply by the way that they eat, by the way that they act, by the things that they speak about, by the things that make them passionate. Uh, it's easy to dismiss vegans, but really when you uh, look at them, you can actually start to see that they, they are obviously a vegan. Even the clothes that they wear will come from specific stores and specific places that are, are ethical in their eyes. Uh, and what I'm trying to get at here is that vegans are actually people that live their belief in their actions. They are people that hold strongly to a firm belief uh, and you see that belief in the way that they live. They make sacrifices, they make decisions based on what they believe, and they live it. Uh, and my challenge for you today is to consider, is your belief seen in your actions? Uh, our topic, we're looking at the idea of building a church for Jesus' apprentices in the book of Titus. Uh, and particularly, uh, the Apostle Paul is instructing Titus and in Crete on, on what doctrine looks like done in the church and how that doctrine builds up the church for those outside. So we're going to be looking at four specific areas that Paul covers. He covers men and women, and he covers what we call slaves, and, and then finally, the idea of how doctrine, that is, a belief, has informed all of this. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So the first thing we're going to look at then is how men build the church. Uh, Paul instructs Titus, to teach the older men, if you look at me with ver at verse 2, he says, to teach older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. He first addresses the older men. We will get to the younger men soon, but he firstly addresses older men. Uh, it's interesting that his first instruction is for them to be temperate, worthy of respect, and self-controlled. Now, what's interesting is that this is actually all one word, and what, what the word is implying here, and what, what kind of the language is implying here, is that men are to not 
consume or be exposed to things that take away their ability to control themselves. In the most basic idea, men are not to get drunk and not to do things where they lose their ability to control their actions. And it's a bit of a grim kind of area to start this morning on, but I really wanted to actually, us to actually think about the real dangers that alcohol actually does for our society. Uh, I had a look the other night uh, on the Australian Institute of Criminology, and between 2000 and 2006, 47% of all homicides were alcohol-related in Australia. Of that 47%, 60% had both parties as drunk, victim and perpetrator. One in four people in Australia have been verbally abused by a stranger who is drunk. And as I looked into the ideas of domestic violence and alcohol abuse, it just, it's just staggering the amount of statistics and awful things that you see. Alcohol, when consumed to excess, is incredibly dangerous. And just reflecting on our own culture, we live in a culture that alcohol, you don't, you don't have a sip, you have a jug of wine. You consume and you consume, and that's our culture. That's, well, that's the Western culture, apologies. That's the culture of Australia. And it actually really uh, helped me understand when I looked at this passage why this is so dangerous. It, Paul, he uses this idea of being worthy of respect, that to be worthy of respect is to be someone who is in control, to not be someone who gives up control to a substance or to something else. They are the people... That is what it means in this passage to be worthy of respect. It's not to have a good job or be, be, be well-spoken or anything else. It's literally to be someone who's in control of themselves. Uh, particularly as men, uh, I think there's a real, we need to be really conscious about how dangerous we are when we are not in control and how ultimately deadly that can actually be in this world. Paul encourages the older men to not allow substances and things in this world to control them. They are to be temperate, worthy of respect, and self-controlled. It doesn't mean we don't drink. The Bible doesn't advocate necessarily absence of wine, but it does encourage temperament, self-control. Secondly, these men are to be sound in faith, in love, and endurance, if you look with me at verse 2 again. There's this idea of of a strong and foundational faith of, a young, of an older man. And it's this imagery of a, almost like a, an enduring, a long-lasting, tough guy. And I want to say that this is, this, is, this imagery is of a guy who can take it, who can last long, who, who uses his faith and his love and endures through all because of it. It's not necessarily a strong, buff Guy. Uh, I'm probably one of the worst examples of what a strong buff guy would look like. Uh, last night, my friends were showing me a video of the world's strongest man eating 25,000 calories in one day, which is the equivalent of 100,000 kilojoules, which is a lot of food. Uh, that is not the strong man, the strong enduring man that Paul is advocating for in this passage. He's advocating for a man who is prepared and in control and can get through the really hard times in life because he has a strong faith, a sound faith, because he acts in love. It is a man who cares and loves for those around him and in some ways takes on their pains and sufferings in doing that. Now I, um, like many of you maybe, I'm not sure where we're all at, but many of you like myself might feel like you don't fit the typical Australian masculine 
mode, which is the sort of, you know, the beer drinking. I don't drink beer because it's, I don't have anything against it, it just tastes gross and it's really expensive. So, the, you know, the beer drinking, the, 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 the thong wearing, foot thongs, the, uh, <laughs> I spent a week in Hawaii, right? It was, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the tradie, the, my hands are very smooth and soft, you know, I don't fit this typical masculine mode. Uh, and I think we, Paul doesn't actually want to encourage us to fit some idea of modern masculinity. He wants us to be people, men, who are shaped by our faith and our love. And that is what gets us through. Not, not our ability to shut down when times are hard so we don't have to deal with issues. You look in the Bible, they cried a lot. They wept and mourned when the men lost, when they suffered but they endured. Endurance is not about shutting down or being strong. It's about persevering and emotionally understanding what's going on around you. So that's the older men. Then he moves on to the younger men. And we're going to skip, we're going to skip a few verses down to verse uh, 6, if you read with me. It says, Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Again, young men, self-controlled. They are encouraged, again, to be in control of themselves, to not allow themselves to be controlled by something else. In everything, set them an example. And this is, he, he, he encourages Titus, the older man, to teach the younger man in his example to show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. As I was reading this, I, w- I thought of the imagery of the Australian larrikin. Uh, the typical young Aussie guy, uh, I, f- I found another picture, but it was too low quality. It was a picture of two guys in lawnmowers in the snow shooting each other, and it pretty much said, men don't grow up, they just get bigger. Um, and it's pretty typical of Australian culture. Men like to have a laugh. Men like to joke around. Uh, pretty much from the moment boys can speak, every first response they ever give you is a joke. You just have to look whenever we try to ask the kids to go out to um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, boys love to joke. Boys love to muck around. And there's this sort of Australian lack of seriousness in the way that we view things. But there are times when having a laugh is not a good idea. And I'm saying this as someone who loves to make a joke. I'm saying this as someone who's worked with Stuart, and every time he tells me a problem, my first response is a joke. But there are times when you can't make a joke. When you're at a funeral, being a larrikin at a funeral is not what someone needs. When you are teaching children about the dangers of of some of the things in this world, having a laugh is not necessarily helpful. When you are talking to someone who is suffering, trying to make them laugh may not be the most appropriate thing. There is value in being serious, in showing integrity in the way that you speak. And I actually think that all stems again from this idea of being self-controlled. For young men, the temptation is to give in and have a laugh and make fun, and then we take it too far, and people get hurt. To show integrity and seriousness is something that God really wants. And I I think it's interesting here that it's actually something that's taught. It's not something that is learnt. You don't teach a kid to misbehave. You teach a kid to obey. You teach a kid when things are serious and you teach a young man when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to have a laugh. 
So that's the responsibility of, of men and what they do to build the church. Now we're going to look a little bit at women and building in the church. Uh, if you start with me again, we'll go to verse 3. It says, Likewise, teach older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Older women are instructed to be reverent, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine. Again, there's this imagery of self-control. Women are to not drink too much wine. Now, it's not that, that men didn't drink. Uh, it's not that women don't drink. There's this, there was this idea, they were in Crete, Titus is in Crete, which is part of, sort of the Roman Empire, and especially for women in that time, your role was primarily in the house. You did not leave the house very often. And I actually looked into why this is sort of addressed, and particularly for older women, who there were less expectations on, the husband might have married some younger women, so there was less things in general. They had access to the wine, and it was common amongst older Cretan and Roman women across the empire to be drunk regularly on wine because that's all they had to do. And so Paul addresses these elder women to tell them to be self-controlled. He addresses a specific issue, but again, he is talking about self-control. He's talking about being mindful of what you are doing to yourself and what that does afterwards. And he wants them to be self-controlled so that they can urge younger women, so that they can teach what is good. And this is a theme throughout this whole chapter, is the old teaching the young. The responsibility of the elder to teach the younger. But what I love about this is that it's not, it's not men, older men, go and teach the younger men about the Trinity, and older women go and teach the younger women about propitiation. I don't know what that word means. It kind of means like to give up. Anyway, um, I do know what it means, I just can't remember. It's not, it's not like a kind of doctrinal teaching. Go and be teachers. Go and educate. It's, no, go and show them how to live. Go and show men. Go and show women how they should live in light of what God has done, in light of the sound doctrine, which we'll get to later on. So women are, older women are expected to, not, to be in control so that they can teach younger women. And then we get to the really kind of sort of more difficult part for us as 21st century uh, Westerners as we look at this passage. So that they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. Sounds pretty nice. Love your husbands, children, and your children. To be self-controlled, again, self-control. Big emphasis for this whole chapter. To be pure, it's not bad. And then we get to this, to be busy at home. I'm sure we all love that line. I'm sure we're all very excited to read that. And to be kind, okay, kindness is good, uh, but to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And I think, I definitely, in my mind, I put a little picture here, I kind of stopped when I read this line the first time. I was like, oh, okay. Maybe I'll just kind of go over it really quickly uh, and not think about it. Uh, It's a really confronting bit of scripture for us to think about. And I want to encourage us that we need to kind of take a step back away from it and not think of it in light of what's just written here, but what is expressed to us in the entirety of the whole Bible. Uh, To give you an example, does anyone know who this woman is? I don't expect anyone to actually know. She's quite a, she's a very important figure, but she's not really well known. Her name is Melissiant Fawcett. She uh, was a woman living in the late 1800s to early 1900s in the United Kingdom, uh, and she was a key leader in the suffragette movement. 
Uh, now, the suffragette movement was a strong movement in European and United Kingdom history that advocated for the rights of women to vote and do other things. Her particular focus was on the rights of women to be educated and to have a say in Parliament. Uh, she is credited as being the reason why English people today, and by us as Australians, as an English colony, have female politicians. Margaret Thatcher stated her as the reason that she is able to be in politics. Uh, she's responsible for, partly responsible for the Representation of People Act, which granted a large proportion of women and a lot of disenfranchised men the right to vote. And the reason I'm bringing her up is that when she was campaigning, when her movement was campaigning, one of the most frequent attacks upon their movement was this verse, that women are to be busy at home. It was the expectation from this passage that you were, your role as a woman was to stay at home and be busy. And so the implication is this imagery of a, a, a sort of housewife, and I don't, I don't, I'm trying to be careful because, you know, housewife can be a really positive thing. Many of us choose to, to be at home and work. But this sort of negative housewife that only stays at home, that has no responsibility, no agency, and, and nothing else, that's your role. And then I, as I was reading this passage, I thought about another passage in the Bible. It comes from Proverbs 31. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever, not, ever read this, prov- this little bit of passage. I would encourage you to go home and read it. But it's the description of the ideal wife, the wife of noble character for a young Hebrew man. And in this passage, the woman is not described as a stay-at-home slave with no authority. She's described as someone who rises, who works hard, who goes to the markets and sells her goods, who takes the money she earns and buys a field and works in that field. She's described as someone who works hard in all aspects of life. And it actually completely changes your idea of what the Bible would say a wife's role should be. Because a lot of the stuff in Proverbs 31 is stuff that, you know, traditionally we would associate with a masculine role. And yet it is a woman who is doing it. And so when we look at this verse in Titus, and then we look at Proverbs 31, we have to realize we're looking at two different things here. In Titus, we're looking at a culture in which women are restricted to their home. Not by the Bible, but by the culture around them. In Proverbs, we see a woman who is free to do as she needs. And what we actually learn from putting these two together is we realize that what Paul is trying to actually talk about is he's, he's arguing against idleness, as in being idle, as in doing nothing. So when he says be busy at home, he's not telling women have to be working at home. He is saying, do not allow yourself to become idle. Do not allow yourself to do, to do nothing, but to be busy. And busyness, uh, psychologically, busyness is actually a really valuable thing. People who, it's shown that if you do house chores, and I'm not just talking about women, I'm talking about men in general, everyone across the board, if you do some sort of house chore, you actually are more happy at the end of that chore than you are before it. There is value in being busy. And I'm not talking about exhausting busyness, but definitely keeping yourself busy. And then we have the second bit, where women are told to submit to their husbands. Uh, we have this imagery, and our, our second reading came from, our first reading, technically, came from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, and I wanted to have that reading put in here because I wanted us to really look at what this submission, call to submission, actually means. If you just turn with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 5, it's on page 1176. Starting at verse 
21, we're told, well, 22, sorry, we're told that wives are to submit to their own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Paul is immediately, again, the same author, he's immediately saying, he's using the examples of husbands and wife to talk about Christ and the church. And in this passage, we learn that the church submits to Christ. And we're all okay with that. We're all okay right now to say that we, as God's church, submit to Christ. And then he says, husbands, love your wife, Ephesians 25, just as Christ has loved the church and give himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing through the water through the word and to present himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Christ leads the church through sacrifice, and cleanses us. And what Paul is actually doing here is he's using the examples of submission to Christ and Christ's authority over the church to help us understand what the point of marriage is. Women are expected to submit as their act of sacrifice. Men are expected to lead sacrificially. And this can be really uh, difficult because I, I've heard plenty of men read this passage and they go, yeah, I'm, I would die for my wife. That's what it tells me to do, give my life up for my wife. I would die for my wife, you know. I'd catch a grenade for her, but I'm also going to go watch the football now and not do anything else. And it's, it's kind of a, a, a bit of a meaningless claim in a culture where we don't really risk life and death every day. Because that's not the sacrificial love that Christ showed for us. He did die for us, and that was his ultimate act of sacrifice. But he worked every day for the good of those around him. He loved all who came to him. We are told countless times in the Gospels that Jesus went away because he was tired and exhausted. He encountered a crowd and he didn't go, you know, it's my time off, I need a break. He loved them. And the imagery here is of an absolute sacrifice of one's own self for the betterment of others. And that's really hard for us to understand because we live in a world where our leaders don't do that. Our leaders act for their own best interests. Yet true leadership is about putting aside what you want for the other. And so what I actually thought about when I looked at this is that submission and leadership in a marital relationship are not that different. They are both about giving yourself over completely to the other person, which is actually really sound marital advice that the secular world has discovered, that one of the keys to... Good marriages is the ability to put aside your own needs and to serve the need of the other. Both ways. And the reason the Bible, I think, has this here, it's found in Ephesians 5, verse 31, if you look with me again, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It's biblical symbolism, and it's something that happens throughout the whole Bible in that the way an action or a a, a tradition or something that we do shows the world something important. In this instance, a marriage between a husband and a wife modeled appropriately in submission and leadership shows the world Christ's love for the church and church's love for for Christ. And you see this throughout. We, we have the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath day was traditionally a day of rest to remember the Lord. Now, if you look through Hebrews, it's a day of rest to remember the coming rest that we will have in Christ through his death on the cross. 
the book of Leviticus is all about symbolism that points people to God. Now, I'm not saying this is the only reason marriage exists as a symbol, but it is a key aspect of it that lived right, done right, shows the world who Jesus is. So that no one will malign the word of God. Women submit and husbands lead so that people will look at them and see Jesus. It's interesting, I missed a bit there, the idea of uh, slanderers uh, was thrown in there. Uh, and there's definitely a sort of cultural thing, it kind of goes across all cultures, that we perceive women as gossips. And I don't know where that came from because I'm pretty sure men gossip more than women. I mean, I, I do. And there's definitely this idea of gossiping in this little passage. And I don't think Paul is saying that women are gossipers, but I think when we consider the stay-at-home reality of, of their existence at that time, there were opportunities created where that kind of thing could happen. Uh, much more easily. So I don't think Paul's implying that women in any sense are are greater or lesser gossipers than men. It's just simply a reality of of that time. What about others and building the church? Uh, Secondly, as we've turned back to Titus chapter 2, from verse 9, we see, teach, if you read with me in verse 9, teach slaves to be subjects subjects to their masters in everything, to try and please them, to not talk back to them, to not steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about slavery in the Bible just because I think Stuart did a really excellent job uh, a month ago when we looked at Colossians. So I would encourage you, if you, if you weren't here for that or if you've maybe forgotten, uh, to go, back on, go online and, and look through the Colossians, have a listen through the Colossians series that Stuart did because it was really great in helping us understand slavery in the ancient world and the Bible's perspective. To summarize it really briefly was that slavery was a reality of, of, of the world. The Bible did not support slavery, but it provided instructions for those in those circumstances. It did not advocate for their freedom necessarily because their freedom would mean certain death because they were quite a minority Christian slaves amongst the people. But what I love about this passage is that he's telling slaves to again pretty much be self-controlled. Slaves had, a op- had op- more opportunity than anyone else in the household to steal from their masters. They were often left unattended. They were often given money and told to go to the markets to purchase what they need for the house. Slaves were given r- r- a lot of unsupervised time. So there were opportunities provided throughout to steal, to be dishonest, to take things. And Paul, again, is encouraging Titus to teach them to be self-controlled, to not give in to those temptations. But what I actually found the most profound about this was this little last fine. It says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. These are the lowest people in the world. These are the people that, no one, the people that aren't even seen as people. They are products. They're lower than some animals. And yet even these people can show God and make him attractive to the world outside. And that's such a a cultural revolution when you think about it. Even the lowest of society have the power to do God's work, to serve and to bring others to him. I've heard people sort of talk about this uh, slavery when we look at it in the modern sense as just being about work, you know, be good workers. I don't think that's really fair, uh, partly because, you know, most of you can quit your job and it would be really difficult and hard, but you could walk away at any time. Uh, 
And there is still real-life slavery today. And to, to sort of compare them both, I think, is a little disrespectful. Disrespectful, I don't know if it's the right word, but just not helpful for the real-life slavery conditions. But I do think that maybe there are a few types of people. I'm thinking of the kind of person that, you know, is in a situation that they cannot escape. The kind of person who doesn't have a mortgage to worry about, but has to worry about whether or not they can pay for dinner tonight. Whether or not they, their kids will have shoes that aren't seven years old. The kind of parent that doesn't know what they're going to do tomorrow because they just lost their job. Or the kind of parent that isn't a job that is miserable, that is awful, that they're being bullied and abused, but their circumstances mean they cannot change anything. Even those people, as awful as their life is or feels, they have power. They have value. They can make God attractive to the world around them. Fourthly, how does doctrine help us build the church? Uh, Paul continues, if you look at me in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to glorify himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul has told us what we should do. And then he says, why? We do this because we have the grace of God. And if we take the sound doctrine that the grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all, that is our sound doctrine, we are saved through Jesus on the cross. And then if we add the sound behaviors in verse 12 there, it says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, be self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And if we add to that the hope that, though, that this all brings, while we wait for the blessed hope, the coming of Jesus, who give, gave himself up for us, if we add these together, then the result is this, that has been found throughout the passage. No one will malign the word of God. Those who oppose you will be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. They will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Sound doctrine plus sound behavior, focusing around hope in Jesus, draws people to God. The power of how we live draws people to God. That is the doctrine that builds our church. So we've looked at these four different people, or things, people, things, themes, and I want us to think, as we're finishing up, I want us to think about how to when do we walk out of here and do something significant. And I, I thought I would reflect to you on my holiday last week. I, I got a chance to go to Hawaii, and I noticed two specific things about Hawaii, or America in general. One, they love sales. Everywhere I went, there was Black Friday sales. Everywhere I went, there was discounts. Every ad on TV was about Black Friday. Every ad, everything was about... We walked into a store and they're like, you've got to come back tomorrow because there'll be even more sales tomorrow. Everything was about it. And I was confused because it was Monday. And I just felt like they didn't know what day of the week it was because they kept advertising Black Friday. And the other thing I noticed about Americans, 
and I really apologize if you are American because I'm not trying to back you out, it was just an observation, they don't seem to like their wives. Comments continuously would happen where they would comment about how they're just glad to be away from their wife. I asked one man, does he like his job? It was just a conversational thing. And his response was, well, it gets me out of the house away from my wife and kids. And it's this sort of masculine kind of, we can't, we can't love our wives publicly. We do love them. And I, I guarantee they do, because I saw one guy say it in front of his wife and she laughed. So I'm like, either they really hate each other or they're clearly making a joke. But it's that sort of, let's make fun of them when they're not around kind of culture. And I want to say to us that as we leave here today, we are not immune from all of this. We are exactly the same. And I want to ask you the question, are you in control? When you leave here today, are you waiting for the Cyber Monday sales tomorrow morning? And I don't say that to rebuke you. I am just as bad. I went shopping for prams the other day, and it is, a hyper, it is addictive to just go through and look at all the different prams and all the cool things that they can do. There's one with an iPhone charger in it, and the wheel's spinning charger. Anyway. <laughs> but... They want you to lose control. The world wants you to lose control because when you lose control, they can take it and they can use you for your money, for your service. When you lose control to alcohol and drugs, you lose your ability to do what is right and good. It's not just those things, though. I was thinking about other things as well. Uh, Pornography addiction, huge issue in this world. Massive. 90% of male teenagers have at least looked at it once by the time they finish school, and I think it's like 70 or 60% of females. It is a massive deal, a massive addiction. It's hidden. The other day, uh, a few years back, I was reading a book, and I was so engrossed in this book, I had to teach scripture the next day, but I stayed up till 4 a.m. reading that book. My addiction to that one thing impacted me in a really bad way the next day. Are you in control? And it's not, not in the sense of, are you the master of your own destiny? That's not what we're saying. We're saying, are you stopping the world and the things of this world from taking away from you your ability to serve God? Secondly, guys, are you being seen for Jesus? You know, we maybe don't bag out our wives as much as the Americans do, but we do, we do kind of make fun of our spouses all the time. When they're not around, we might hang out with friends and just talk about how my wife is really annoying because she makes me look after the house that I live in. Because, um, you know, apparently that's a bad thing. Uh, but we all do it. And actually, one of the wisest things that was ever said to me, I used to have this friend, and she, uh, and she would um, come to me and complain about this other friend. And I remember I came to her, and I met this other friend finally, and I hated this other friend. I'd never met her in my life, and I finally got the chance to meet her, and I hated her because of everything that she'd shared with me. And yet my friend, the friend that had been complaining, was just hugging her and being a best friend. I'm like, what are you doing? Aren't you like enemies? Isn't that what we've discussed and talked about? The way that you talk about other people when they're not around is a big deal. It shows who you are inside. Uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was don't complain about your spouse to your parents because while you will forgive her or him, they won't. The way that we talk about the people we love, the friends that we have, even just the strangers that we know, reflects how we are seen. My encouragement, I do apologize, I've gone a little over time. My encouragement is to live as vegan Christians. It's not to eat vegetables, although apparently it's great for you, I think. Uh, but it's to live to be seen, it's to, it's to believe to be seen. 
It's to have your belief seen. It's not about drawing attention to yourself to be seeing how great I am. We're not talking about the, the Pharisee at the temple. We're talking about living a life that draws attention to Jesus. To have seen belief so that when people look at you, they can see Jesus. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us, that you have died for us, that through your grace we can say no to the passions of this world and eagerly wait your return in blessed hope. We pray that you'll help us to do this, to live a life that honors you and to glorify you until the day that you return. In Jesus' name, amen.